Greetings, and welcome to Brace. On today's episode, I am joined by Bill Burnett, and we're going to be talking about the virtue determination. Determination is defined as a quality that makes you continue trying to do or achieve something that is difficult. It complements commitment and tenaciousness and transcends complacency. Bill, you are a model for determination because you have moved up the corporate ladder, starting as a paramedic and now a senior emergency manager. It's difficult to move up the ladder, and it takes a determined person. In order to do this, you continued your education and got your master's in emergency management. I believe your story is one that can inspire others to work towards success. My, my current role, I serve as the uh, senior emergency manager for Northeastern Ohio, which I oversee eight hospitals, and I have three people who work with me to oversee operations at those regional hospitals. So in, in the role of emergency management, Typically, when people ask me, oh, what do you do? What is that? Uh, they assume that I'm in the emergency department. So I let them know in a very simple way. It's like the civilian version of FEMA. So we write all of our preparedness and mitigation policies and procedures. And then, of course, we institute those. Uh, we do a lot of drills and, uh, of course, response, which we saw quite a lot of uh, with the cold weather that we just recently incurred. Yeah, for uh, sure. Holidays. Talked so. about that on the our second day of Christmas. Yes. But just to finish up, it is difficult to move up the ladder and it takes a determined person. Tell me, kind of just for the listeners, just a background of kind of your life. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I would love to because it was an interesting natural progression from what I had started. So when I had gone into the military after finding that my first year of college was like high school with ashtrays, I elected to <laughs> join the military. I felt like, hey, you know, I'm going to go ahead and pay for this myself, and it's something I've always wanted to do is to serve my country. With the additional training I received as a medic in the military and then being uh, deployed to Iraq for Operation uh, Desert Storm, I felt that this was the career I wanted to pursue. I didn't like the, obviously, the trauma that I had to deliver care for, but I really did enjoy the aspect of taking care of people. So when I was honorably discharged and probably about, I was in several different positions for years. I went into sales and I went into the service industry, which I enjoyed all of those. And I did learn lots of things, especially from the service industry and the sales industry. And those were just tools that I could put in my belt to serve my career in the future. I then, because my training in the military did not transition to the civilian world. So I had to go and take the paramedic program all over again, which actually served me very well, as most of that's focused on cardiology and other ailments, respiratory, GI, things of that nature, other than the trauma that I got really good at in the military. So I, after that, I, I served with the Cleveland Clinic as a paramedic in their regional hospitals. I then became an adjunct faculty member at one of the local colleges and started teaching other paramedics how to become paramedics. <laughs> so it, it, was, it was a fantastic transition for me to go from practitioner to teacher, uh, although I was still working in a clinical setting. At that point, I felt that there was a natural progression as I got 
got the bite of emergency management, I was asked by my director to attend a class down in Anniston, Alabama. Uh, it's a FEMA Homeland Security run program, and it was for a hospital preparedness for mass casualty incidents class, which was fantastic. And once I came back from that class, I felt that there was a natural progression from EMS or emergency medical services into emergency management. At the time, I did not have a degree, but I began serving as the committee chair for the emergency management committee at one of our regional hospitals, where I then began to develop relationships with senior administration and other allied health folks, as well as physicians and nurses. I was then identified as someone who you know, potentially could move into this role because there was no designation requiring a, a degree at the time. So naturally, as businesses grow, they said, hey, you know what, in order to become a manager, you'll have to get your bachelor's. So I said, okay. So I went, got my bachelor's in my 40s. So, <laughs> you know, here I am in my 40s thinking, oh, this is going to be difficult. When I actually found it was very gratifying. I felt that the life experience I had acquired over the years made it a lot more fortifying to enable that goal of achieving my bachelor's degree, which I did in short order. I got that done in three years with very little previous credits. So not to not to cut you off, no, but no. just a uh, intermediary question. It's something me and Paul have talked about where it seems like at 18, it's probably not the best time to go into college, right? And just hearing all your experiences that then led you to a successful bachelor's degree. It makes sense to me that once you have a passion for something and you actually have that drive and the experience, that's the time to actually go and do the studying. Not to say that, you know, our current process of sending kids to, to college is bad, but I just don't know that it's as fulfilling for most people, I guess, in my generation, just because they don't know what they want to do. And then I think there's a lot of uncertainty when they start going on one path and then, oh, I don't really like this. And then I have to change majors. And now college is six years. And wait, you started college six years ago. Why haven't you graduated? You know, and right. <laughs> so, so a lot of those things can come up. And I'm wondering, do you feel the same way? You know, when I first entered college immediately after high school, I wanted to be a lawyer. So, you know, I had to take a lot of political science courses, and which I enjoyed. But I really... And, you know, earlier I referenced the high school with ashtrays because it was a lot of repetition from what I had already repeated in my senior year, mathematics, English. And I know those are prerequisites in order to move forward in your degree. However, I lost drive. I lost the motivation to really continue as I knew that law school would be seven to eight years out as that would come to an end. Unlike yourself, who was extremely determined and knew exactly what you wanted. Not not everybody has that that drive and the motivation that you did, Tommy. And and I'm so proud of what you did and what you've accomplished. Well, I appreciate that, Uncle B. Oh, well, I mean, it's or I it's guess amazing. I'll call you Bill for the... <laughs> sure. You can call me whatever you know. So do I believe that there are options for others? Absolutely. As we see the price of college admissions and dorms and living going up into the forty to $80,000 a year, where most of these students, when they come out, may not even have the skills to enter the job market for anything less than $15 an hour, and they're harnessed with over $100,000 in debt. 
Whereas the trades right now are a very popular option for younger folks, HVAC techs or even uh, technology, cybersecurity. There are so many trades right now that pay very well and are fantastic career options. So do I feel that there may be a delay for some like myself? Absolutely. Uh, I didn't really have that motivation to complete my degree because I was making decent money in the markets in which I was employed. However, I, you know, I did want something different, and uh, I hope that answers your question, Tommy. Yeah. No, for sure. So to get back to where we were, you just finished your bachelor's degree. Yeah. So What happened then? My chief operating officer <laughs> made, a, made a comment when I had my boss in with him, and he says, oh, so when are you going to be director? Because I had worked with this chief operations officer for many years, and he felt that that was also a progression that I should have been making. Of course, I was flattered, but uh, still didn't have the amount of experience that was required, nor the education. So although it's not required, it's certainly favorable in order to have a master's degree in the chosen profession, uh, moving into like a director position. And I was 50 years old. And I thought, okay, where am I going to be two years from now? I'm either going to be 52 with a bachelor's, which I would have been perfectly happy, or I would be 52 with a master's degree. So I elected to go back to school, which I was very proud of myself. In (laughs) many a night when I was in Iraq, freezing my butt off in the winter on patrol, never thought that I would have a master's degree. And I know anymore today in the professional world, a master's degree is almost an entry-level degree, because a bachelor's is kind of like an associate. We require a higher level of education in order to move forward and upward in today's business climate. So, yeah, so I went back to school. I buried my nose in my books, wrote lawn papers every week, and was able to achieve my master's, which to me was a pretty good achievement, and I was very happy. This, of course, just recently has started to open doors for me as I've gained experience and you know new management skills. The degree opened up new windows for me that I naturally probably wouldn't have been able to step through had I not achieved that uh, level of education. I hope that sums up what I was. Yeah. Okay. For sure. Excellent. So I mean, <laughs> yeah, you've had you've had a kind of long career and long long path of uh, you know different stepping stones and taking the experience that you've learned in in previous jobs and kind of moving that forward. Where do you think the motivation or the skill of determination to, you know, keep fighting and set those kind of long-term goals, where do you think that came from? You know, honestly, I, I had great parents. I have great parents and I have great family. You know, I have two amazing sisters wonderful nephews and a niece (laughs) who I adore and look up to. I have two daughters who I wanted to show them that it's never too late and that you can always achieve your dream. As my oldest daughter is about to enter college next year, and she's very determined as to what she wants to do. She wants to enter the nursing field. And I want to, you know, help guide her in that direction. But as they saw me sacrifice a lot of Sundays and evenings, you know, as opposed to watching TV and hanging out, you know, buried in a computer, reading books, writing papers, to this day, I still feel that that impacts them to show that it's never, like I said, never too late. And that in order to follow your dreams, all it takes is hard work and determination. So as my career built on and my education level was needed to be increased, not only for my own benefit, but for the ability to move up, I was 
motivated by self-gratification. I guess that it made me feel really good that I could go back to school, that I did exceptionally well in things I was very afraid of, like statistics. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just not a math guy, and I had to work hard for it, but I got an A in it, uh, which uh, I thought, oh, if I could just get a C, I'll be fine. So I was very surprised by my own motivation as I continued through my career, through education. I don't want to drone on, but I could cycle or circle back to what drove me in in the industry. Yeah. So working with great leaders, learning something different from everyone that I've ever worked with, their style, their leadership abilities, their personality. And I've never changed the way I use my approach to other people. I treat everyone the same. So I know that sounds kind of cliche, but so I'll have a conversation with somebody who may take care of vacuuming a room as much as I would hold the respect for the chief operations officer or president of a hospital. And I think that's extremely important that you always treat people as you wish to be treated. I know that also, but because those relationships, those build upon each other. And that one guy, you may inspire him or gal to do something better for themselves or to remain where they are and be happy with what they do. Yeah. You know, to not have to feel as though you have to achieve a level or a a title in order to be happy in life. You know, I know people that are in various industries who are extremely happy with what they do, and they actually wake up excited about it. I still am in that position where I wake up every day and I look forward to what I'm doing. (laughs) And I think that relationship building is extremely important. And I find that that is a motivational tool to excel at every day and everything that you want in order to uh, naturally progress through your life. I know that kind of (laughs) circled around a lot. But but it it makes sense. I mean, I, one of the, the core tenants like kind of I believe is that you have something to learn from everybody just because of past experiences and because of everybody has a different life, right? So they may have some experience that could be useful to you and not to look at it as a, you know, I'm getting something from having this relationship, but just to get to know people, to understand them. I know that it's helped me at least in in my job, right? Like building relationships with it's manufacturing, but people on the floor, right? Just being able to talk with them, not only just about work, but about what's going on with their families or what's going on in their lives. And once you create like a bond and you know, a relationship, people will go out of their way to to help you out too, right? And so I, I think that's, it, it sounds very similar and makes a lot of sense. No, and thank you for summarizing that so eloquently <laughs> because that's exactly what I was trying to drive. The message I was trying to also indicate was that there are individuals, regardless of their role, who have something to offer Especially in a regional hospital, we wear many hats, whereas at some major corporations, you're very siloed. And so I enjoy the experience of working with various groups and other people to really establish that rapport that we, we'll attack an issue as a group. So there's no like, oh, well, I don't generally work with facilities. I'm not really f- – no, we, we do environment of care rounds with them, and we get to understand their job just a little so that we can also assist them if necessary. So it's that it, – like you had said, that, that relationship building, getting to know them, having that instant response. It's not just having the contact that, to call, 
but to have that relationship. Hey, Brian, you know, it's Bill. Hey, Bill, doesn't sound good. What's going on? <laughs> you know, so they already know pretty much what I'm going to need. But when they call, I also am open to, you know, helping them plan with a, a meeting for a, some sort of a facilities update or uh, some sort of a transfer switch that they need to do with the electrical company. But, yeah, you, I wouldn't know those things unless I built that relationship with them. So, But, yeah, thank you for summarizing it so well, Tommy. <laughs> so we heard a, kind of the background and the, the overall kind of path that you've moved upwards in. I'm curious, what are some of the biggest challenges you faced in that? Uh, you explained a few of them, just the fear of going back to school. You're probably going to be with people of different ages, right, and at least probably in the bachelors, younger people, kind of being the older man out. Uh, yeah. No offense, but. <laughs> no, no. And, you know, it's interesting, and I use my grandfather's words when he was, oh, I think he was about 80 years old at the time. And he says, Bill, he says, my mind still feels like I'm in my 20s, but my body reminds me that I'm not. And I still relate very well to younger people. A lot of the people that I work with in this field are younger than I am. And I sometimes forget that, you know, I'm 53 and they're in their 20s. And But that's always what's important is finding relatable things to your colleagues and your coworkers. And, of course, I still can't get over the fact that I'm walking down the hall and people address me as sir. You know, uh, maybe it's the lack of hair, the gray coming in. But, uh, yeah, so the, the challenges I faced definitely were going back into college with a bunch of very intelligent, young, very motivated, not napping, tired folks, which not that I require a nap, but, you know, I like the occasional nap. So, and, you know, young folks, they've got boundless energy. So I had to match that. I had to mirror that, which was extremely challenging. The ability to say, well, I guess I'm burning the midnight oil because I didn't complete that paper. Here I am up till one o'clock in the morning knowing I have to be up at five so I can go to work. And that's probably not unfamiliar to a college student living on campus or maybe off campus, you know, knowing that not because of procrastination, but ugh, I didn't spend that time because here I am working full time and going to school full time. So that was very challenging to match their energy, their enthusiasm. I felt that once I got to know a lot of the students, you know, in, in particular classes, that we had a lot in common and that I was able to match that enthusiasm and energy that they, that they projected. So that was extremely challenging in itself. That's based on my education. Work-wise, it was really establishing relationships with various in the hospital allied health groups. So because I had a background in EMS, it gave me just enough so that I could re be relatable to nursing and to physicians and to respiratory, radiology, uh, the pharmacy the and laboratory, several areas which are essential to my planning, such as for like a mass casualty incident response. So knowing the vernacular, knowing the terminology, what they do, what they're capable of, and having a little bit of that and opening myself up to new experiences and absorbing that, it was difficult because it's a lot of information you have to absorb, just like in your field, you know. I mean, so... Well, I, just to relate it to my field, yeah. we have, you know, all these different codes for parts, for rubber, for different tire tick codes, and... It's almost like learning a new language. And I feel like it's it sounds very similar in the medical industry where you are essentially learning all this terminology and 
and how to use it in order to actually convey information. Because I, I would assume, correct me if I'm wrong, but in management, communication is probably one of the biggest and most important tools to have. It is the largest, and especially in emergency management, if you ever look at what we call an after-action review. So after every major incident in emergency management, or whether that be fire, whether that be police, or whether it's a local, state, or federal response, we always write an after-action report. And it's a summary of what occurred, what we could have done better, and what we could have done worse. And so when we analyze that report, it gives us the opportunity to make action plans and change our policies according to the response based. So whether or not we're like, hey, what was written in the emergency operations plan worked or Ooh, that didn't work, <laughs> let's make some changes. And that might be culturally specific to a particular business and or entity. So as you're probably well aware, uh, for those individuals who are listening, we had a major winter storm which covered 39 of the lower 48 states, which affected temperatures throughout the country. And so we had extreme, well, we had hurricane force winds to 65 miles per hour. Temperatures were reflected at two degrees Fahrenheit with negative 20, 25 degree uh, wind chill. Unfortunately, these, these weather conditions affect your infrastructure, whether it be your personal home or your business, your car, and of course your body. Well, not to cut you off, but <clears throat> Paul won't be joining us today. Uh, he's listening in on on Skype uh, and you know shooting me some questions to ask. Sure. But part of that is uh, he was also affected by the storm. One of his pipes broke and flooded his house, and not to mention he's also he's a little under the weather just because of the change of temperatures and all this sort of thing. So. Uh, just for the listeners, that's why it's you know just me and Bill today. But yeah, and I'm sorry, Paul. That's absolutely <laughs> horrible. I really wish I could have been able to speak to you, and I I wish you well, and I, I hope that uh, we have a nice recovery effort for your home. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. But you were talking about the infrastructure at the hospital. Yeah. So we had several emergencies, but one of our emergencies at one of our hospitals. So our electrical company, CEI, which services our electrical grid, we have redundancy on our lines to our hospital, so we'll always have two. Well, both of them went out at the same time. Now, not only is it required by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, as well as the Ohio Department of Health, amongst other compliance, that we have generators that function for the basic needs of our hospital. At this particular hospital, they had several generators to run this large facility. And so we had made our contacts through our federal emergency support function, which basically says that we get to prioritize electrical reestablishment in a hospital. So they did not have good news for us. The lines were serviced underground and that they were CEI's responsibility. However, it may take several days to restore a city power to the hospital. They were very hopeful that they might be able to address the next one the following day. So we were very solid. We were running on generators. We had plenty of fuel. Things were looking up. So the next day, we still did not have city power. Uh, we started losing generators because one of our day pumps that services the generators from our underground tanks froze because that's where it exists, is out in outside of the hospital. We were able to manually override that to service our generator tanks, or you know, the tanks to service the, the generators themselves, but we could only do it in one-hour cycles, enough fuel to do one hour of generator run. 
Well, it progressed from there. It got worse. And it was the first time in my career that I thought we might lose a hospital. It was wow. it was all hands on deck. And luckily, because we have fantastic facilities folks, and because of all the efforts of those from various allied health positions, such as nursing, administration, operations, facilities, EVS, uh, that we were able to restore power, and of course, the wonderful people at CEI. We were able to reestablish one line of our city power. The whole operation took approximately 34 hours, and it was a long, long Christmas Eve. And uh, unfortunately, I missed the wonderful dinner that Tommy's dad puts on annually, but I was able to achieve a bowl of soup from that prime rib that he normally makes, so I'm very happy about that. But yeah, also multiple hospitals, you know, frozen lines, broken lines. So, but we managed, and it just hasn't seemed like a a holiday without some sort of a a, a travesty, but that's what we do, so. Yeah, yeah. Nowhere near the same levels, but me and my coworker, we drove back to Ohio in order to come home for the holidays, and we ended up having to stop right on the border of Ohio and Indiana after a 12-hour drive and stay the night just because the roads were so bad. It was icy and slick, and we saw as we were driving a semi jackknife off the road about like 200 feet in front of us, and then you know we're starting to slow the brakes. We were only going like 30 miles an hour on the highway. And, uh, and then a car, like, zooms out into the ditch and, like, back onto the road. And then we were at a standstill, and, you know, me and my coworker were kind of just like, all right, we should stop. We'll, uh, we'll take, a, take a nice rest at the hotel and uh, come back later. But, yeah, it's – I think there's, like, billions and billions of dollars of damages just from this. I mean, a crazy historic storm. But that's kind of why – you have people in your position, right? Like to prepare for the emergencies uh, needed. I guess uh, to a listener starting out their career in medicine or, you know, generally, what are some takeaways that they could learn from your experience? Like you had alluded to earlier, be passionate about what you want to do. I've known many people that have gone straight into school, got a degree of various sorts or another that basically was about as valuable as the best outhouse wallpaper (laughs) because they went into a market with no marketable skills. And I know I want people to understand that, you know, when you go into college, yeah, half of it is it's growing up. It's having fun, exploring who you are, developing yourself, but it's also to achieve an education. And not that I'm an expert by any means, but I I feel that you really do have to want it, that you have to be passionate about something. You're a prime example, Tommy. You knew exactly what you wanted to do. You pursued it with vigor, and you were successful. And so you're a success story in itself. So I find that extremely admirable, and I continue to look up to you every day as I learn how you progress through your career. Well, I appreciate that. Well, that's absolutely true. So, you know, I think that if you can learn to also reduce stress in your life, you know, we all stress ourselves out, especially us Northeastern Ohio <laughs> folks. We, uh, we live off of stress. We strive off of it. And in, in today's market right now with the economy the way it is, you're finding a lot of younger people just saying, eh, I'll just stay at home and collect a check. I'm not generalizing, but I think there are a lot of people right now that feel that they're entitled to something and that they don't have to work for it. I'm probably 
one of those old generations. I don't even know what I am. Gen, <laughs> generation bat. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I always felt like if you wanted something, you had to work, to, you know, you had to work for it and you had to make sacrifices. And I, you know, and I survived and I'm perfectly happy. And I learned to laugh every day. I find that if, if I can make somebody else laugh, even if it's at my own expense without looking <laughs> like a fool, I've accomplished my daily goal. And it makes me empowered to realize that I have that relatable skill to people. So go and test it out. Try it out. Take it for a spin. You know, be yourself. You know, it's important that you're, you know, conducting yourself in a manner that is conducive to normal business operations, whether that be working at a fast food restaurant or that being in a, in a corporate position. But you also have to learn to just be yourself and break out of the mold because you'll find that that stress will build up and it can do detrimental things to you. So, yeah, learn to just enjoy life because there are so many things to enjoy in life. And for those those people that are affected by various things like depression, you know, COVID was a was a bear. It was a bitch. It it has affected our children. I've seen this in my own children. It's affected everyone. And we're seeing more people needing services such as psychological services and you know antidepressants and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that i'm glad that we're able to recognize that people had a really tough time in that two-year period and during the shutdown for the month that we were shut down and for the amount of restrictions that were placed on us and i don't want to get political but i i feel it's important that people take care of themselves find that balance between work and life don't bring home work just don't you know try to drop it at the at the door when you leave work and enjoy your family enjoy you know that that downtime because it's essential and if you don't have that you'll find that your pipes are going to they're going to burst they're going to break <laughs> yeah you know? and i hate to use that paul sorry <laughs> but uh yeah you need to enjoy life so take it day by day find something that you enjoy whether that's working out reading going for a run playing a video game but treat yourself well and uh, I think that whatever challenges you find, you have. If you prescribe yourself that, that life is good. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think, some incredible takeaways. We just, uh, Paul and I just reviewed uh, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. And literally, like, all of those are, like, chapter titles. Yeah. The, the things you just spoke about. <laughs> uh, and I promise you I didn't listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it just makes a ton of sense. They're cliches for a reason because they've stuck around for generations upon generations. I think just to hit on your kind of entitled point, I think it's it's tough because we live in a very prosperous society. I mean, I think the best society that the world has ever known. And when people are just looking at the news or looking at Instagram or looking at this and that, and we've also mentioned this and talked about it, but you're seeing this giant gap between everybody else is having fun and knowing what's going on and, oh, I should have that, right? Everybody else has that. But what people don't see are the hours that are put in before or the nights that, you know, you're not hanging out with family or friends, you're in the books, right? And so it's hard to to show that in a sense, just because it's it's not a picture, right? It's it's hours and hours of time. And so just on the, you know, on the entitled point, I think it makes sense where we're at just in society and we're kind of setting people up to be entitled. And I, I'm not sure exactly all the remedies to that, but I think the core tenant of working for 
what you want, working for what you want to receive uh, is really important. But all your takeaways, uh, I mean, incredible points. Just, I think taking care of yourself is is big. Me and Paul have been doing a kind of restructuring, re-looking at our just lives in general, you know, kind of looking at long-time goals uh, and breaking that down into like the daily habits, the things that you have to do today in order to incrementally improve, improve, improve. Uh, it's kind of the same as investing, you know, five bucks a day. Over time, it just increases, increases, increases. The compound interest of even just habits. But one thing that we talked about in our, you know, setting this up, we have to have time for fun, right? So one of the things that I try and schedule out is like one social outing a week with just friends. And because I'm doing kind of all the structured stuff at the beginning of the day or, you know, throughout the day, then that evening is mine, right? Like there's no worry associated with it. I can just enjoy, I can savor the time with the friends because I know I've done the work before. But, you know, scheduling, I think Paul said it, but uh, plan your entertainment so it doesn't plan you. Uh, I just think like the phones and the mini distractions can easily just take away your time, right? And And not knowing as you're just scrolling through, scrolling through, scrolling through, how much time is going away. And I think a, another point on that is, I mean, life's finite, right? Like maybe we have this complex that we all think we're just going to live forever, but, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think as you get older, uh, you start to see that, you know, my body starts to hurt more and, and <laughs> you, you start f seeing the, you know, the toll. And I think remembering that life is finite and to savor the moments, would you rather look back at 90 on your deathbed? Oh, wow. I, I really liked all those times I scrolled on my phone or watched YouTube for days and days upon end. Like, I wish I had one more day to spend with friends or family. So I think thinking about mortality is important as well, just to kind of provide extra motivation, like seize the day. You know, and, and you strike a very good point. <laughs> and not only did you tie it in with the technology, you know, and just briefly, I can't stand cell phones. I, I utilize them because I have to. I do like the fact that I can have instant researchability and you know the occasional even game and i i admit i do like a little bit of downtime on my phone but we have distanced ourselves from this type of communication from from talking to each other from that actual interaction they had an article which somebody wrote about where for their birthday they just had a social media get together where everyone could text and that there was no relatable. So there are a lot of people that don't even know how to take a phone call or make a phone call. I found that to be extremely frightening. And I found it the first time when my daughter says, I don't like taking phone calls. Can you just text me? I thought, wow. You know, when I was a kid, the only way you were going to get a hold of a friend was to go over to their house <laughs> and ask if they want to play or if you had the opportunity and your parents allowed you was to use the landline. You know, we didn't have this instant access, but I, I, and I'll circle back to your original point was the mortality. So as I grow older, I find that my, yes, my body has begun to broke <laughs> down. You know, it's, it's breaking down and you know, it's not even the years, it's the mileage, you know, it's what you do to your body. So taking care of yourself, you know, I've had several fluctuations in weight. I've had several, you know, periods where I've been extremely physically active and like a leech, you know. So, <laughs> uh, you know, trying to find that balance because it's essential that you treat your body well. And if something does occur, to address it immediately. 
you know, if you find, oh, you know what, you have high blood pressure, whether that be because you have a family history or you made some bad life choices, there are ways to mitigate that. You know, take a medication, cut back on your salt or, you know, change certain aspects of your diet. Because if I were to tell you, Tommy, all you have, all you can eat is salad for the next 10 years, you're going to fail. So if you don't have options, you know, clearly you're not going to have any success. <laughs> But, you know, I only say that because I recently was diagnosed with, you know, type 2 diabetes. And I was floored because I'd never had poor readings. And I always felt I had a, a pretty good diet. And, you know, the ignorance behind that was <laughs> that, oh, I don't eat sweets, <laughs> but I love, I love a good bowl of pasta. <laughs> so, and I'm managing that. I don't have to take insulin, but I'm managing that through diet and so, you know, yeah, I have a lot of ailments. I've had a lot of things break down on my body. But I think only through positive attitude and, and projecting the energy that, hey, I'm just as young as you. Now, when we break and we've played, you know, catch with the football and I come <laughs> home and I've got ice packs and, you know, biofreeze all over half of my body. But, yeah, take care of yourself. And that, yeah, that kind of alludes or connects back with what I was saying is, you know, finding that balance in your life. Yeah, you start to think about, okay, I've got so many years before I retire. And even though if you love your job, don't live your job because you've got to find, and hopefully you're investing like you <laughs> alluded yeah. to earlier. If you're young, start now. Gosh, I wish I had. I started when I was 28. And I still feel that I'm going to achieve my goal, but I probably still have to work a couple more years than I wanted to. I would have loved to retire at 60, but... That's probably not going to happen. So, yeah, uh, uh, thinking about your goals. Not the, yeah, that, that's a way, wrong way to say it, end of life. But, you know, your goals at the end of your career and planning for that. Because, like you said, everybody feels like they're, inv you know, they're invulnerable. They're going to live forever. I'll do it later. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't need to start investing. I could use it now. Because, yeah, the, the cost of energy, the cost of products. And a lot of people are like, eh, you know what, I need that extra money. Yeah, just assume that that money is already gone. So, you know, take that investment, the opportunity, especially if you have like a match, and I don't mean to get down the investment. <laughs> but, you know, do that investment now because it'll pay off later. And, you know, that maybe sacrifice like, oh, I'm not going to get Starbucks every day. And maybe I'll make coffee at home or something, something little. But, yeah, investing early, especially like a successful young man like yourself, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you said, eh, you know, I'm going to enjoy the, 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 oh my gosh. Fruits of my labor yes, currently. Yeah, basically. And just blow everything on various things. You're a smart guy, so you know better. But not to say that you're dumb if you make that decision. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I'll, I'll stop with that. But Well, I mean, just to point on, uh, like, delayed gratification, right? Like, the future goal yes. versus instant gratification. I don't think humans have evolved at the same time that technology has evolved. And so I know That's I'm going point. back a little bit, but, you know, back in the Stone Age, uh, it was all about today, right? It was about surviving today. You had to look for immediate gratification. Mm -hmm. You had to find the fruit, right, as a gatherer, or you had to hunt the elk. You had to focus on today, right? Whereas now in this, you know, prosperous time, you can decide and make the, you know, correct choice to delay gratification, make the sacrifices now, save the money now, invest now, and see the fruits of that in the future. But I think technology and uh, one of the movies 
that I saw recently, The Social Dilemma. I don't know if you saw that on Netflix, but it talked about the screens, right? I mean, it's it's a distraction. It's a it's instant gratification at all times. You know, Bo Burnham jokes uh, in his most recent comedy special, everything all at the same time, or the internet. I'm trying to remember the name of the, the song, but it's you could have everything and anything all the time. Yeah. And I think that because we're hardwired to, you know, just evolutionarily – look for the immediate gratification. I think it you have to understand that that's how your brain is set up in order to overcome that and actually do the things that'll prepare you for the future. It's definitely not an easy thing to do, but I think it's the more fulfilling path to take in a sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and you get that immediate response, you know, you get that adrenal, not adrenal, but you get that chemical response that's released from your brain. Endorphins are released from your body when you feel instant gratification. You're like, oh, I'm going to have that chocolate bar. I mean, not that they say there's anything wrong with that, but that definitely <laughs> correlates to an endorphin response. And that's why a lot of people say that their response to eating chocolate is like from love uh, because they're, they release the same type of chemical from your brain. So the amount of likes or the amount of people that follow you that you don't even know on social media, you know, and I, I always joke with some of my younger colleagues. I say, yeah, I was, uh, I got a video from that Tic Tac and, and, you know, they're like, what? You mean TikTok? Oh, yeah. You know, or Instagram or the face of the book. So, you know, knowing that, uh, that technology exists out there, that's a lot of people receive their gratification from responses positive ones usually uh from people they don't even know and i i feel like we really should restart to reconnect and that doesn't require obviously like the power grid going down where nobody can use their phone but you know put the damn thing down reach out give somebody a phone call that you haven't talked to in a while like your parents you know like i used to call my mom at least several times a week there'll be times where i haven't speak to her in like a month and i'm like oh, you know what i really should just call her, you know, and she might be in a different state because they live in Florida half the year. But, uh, you know, finding that time to reconnect with others as opposed to looking for gratification from people you don't even know. You know, I had somebody recently asked to follow me. I'm like, who in the, who is this? <laughs> you know, and so I don't know. I, I'm trying to validate your point. But yeah, it technology has definitely changed the way we look for that gratification in life. It'll sound maybe a little vindicating, but I think that's why I love the long form podcasts. And, you know, that's what inspired, I think, both Paul and I to, you know, sit down and have conversations, long conversations, where we can just connect and get to know one another uh, on a, I guess, deeper level in a sense than just a random text or mm. even just a short five minute call. I, I think it's a lot more fulfilling to have hour long conversations. And, Again, not to vindicate myself, but I think a lot of people are moving and liking these things. I mean, Joe Rogan, no one thought he would succeed with three-hour podcasts. Uh, he got a lot of people you know, saying, like, oh, you should just do, like, six-minute clips or this thing like that. He's like, no, I'm going to keep just doing it, and he's the biggest podcaster in the world. It's amazing. And he now, because he's been doing it so long, and I hope to one day be at that point where I've done enough and can just bring on people and – I don't want this to sound bad, but right now we're bringing on everyday people who don't necessarily have a voice. 
right? Who don't necessarily have the podcast set up. But like I said earlier, I think you can learn something from everyone. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, your experience is just, it's just interesting to to read all this stuff and then to hear it from someone who's been in the industry and uh, has moved up the, the corporate ladder. So just as uh, a few other questions, Paul threw a few little things in here. One of them was, uh, did the uh, military help pay for your degree at all? Or uh, you went right into paramedics right after that, right? Or you had a few few jobs in between, right? Yeah, yeah I signed up. When I signed up, you had to put $100, $100 a month for 12 months into an account, and it was called the GI Bill. And I believe I got $25,000 upon my honorable discharge for serving my country, which was and still is a lot of money. You have to start utilizing it within 10 years of your discharge from the military service. I think I was at like year seven. Because <laughs> I, I immediately went back to work. And so, no, yeah, I, absolutely. The the GI Bill and all of the lessons learned, the support that I received from the military and the non-support. A lot of people ask me, you know, based on some of the experiences I had during the war, you know, would you have done that? Absolutely. It changed who I was, and I'm forever grateful to my country and forever will, regardless of the some of the negative experiences I had. But let's look at the, the good ones, the $25,000 to pay for school, the fact I lived in Europe for almost a full year before you know, being deployed to Iraq. Amazing. You know, I don't know many people who lived in Germany for a year unless they were exchange students. So and got to travel and see Europe and unfortunately went to, you know, some places I didn't want to go. But, you know, <laughs> I, that's one place I can say safely that I will never go back to is Iraq, Kuwait or Saudi Arabia. But, you know, again, those experiences built who I was. And I know I'm expounding, but yes, yes, the GI Bill was extremely essential. And that was one of the reasons I went in, knowing that there was a risk that I may have to serve my country. And I gladly did and was proud to do so. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, incredible. And I think it also shows that pretty much everything in one's life leads to where they are now. And not to make it like a predetermined path, but who you are now is based on those experiences yeah. from the past. Yeah, positive or negative. Yeah. I think one thing to look at is even those negative experiences can still, you can look back on them and say, this is what I learned from it. Right. I think uh, another thing that people have issue with is like the fear of failure mm. uh, and being so afraid to fail that they don't even try. And I think that's something that I mean, even just to throw it back to the the calls on the phone. I know even for myself, uh, when I started my job, like I would just send an email like I, I didn't really want to answer the phone mm. or pick up the phone. But I think it's practice, right? Like when you make enough mistakes or when you start doing something, you're, you're going to suck at it at the start. Yep. And that's, that's with anything. There's no, there's no immediate success. I think in almost anything, I think there are maybe skills and things that you grew up with, uh, or values and things that your parents taught you, right. That kind of develop over time, but there is no instant Joe Rogan per se. And I know I've already brought him up, but uh, it takes time and it takes practice. And just to bring that into the experience-wise, right, I think people should try and not be afraid of failure because I think you can look back on it and learn from it, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I think we can all account for many failures in our lives. And as you get to be my age, you'll find that there are several things that you regret, but you learn from it. 
And again, you're never going to be good at anything unless you try. And trying sometimes also comes with failure. It also comes with success. So <laughs> that's the whole thing is, is fear. And it's very hard. It, it, you know, I can't, if I were a therapist and I brought somebody in, I said, well, you can't be afraid to do that. How can I say that? You know, I mean, yeah, yeah what, what, what one person uh, may, how they may approach something may be completely different from one other. But again, and many people have said it in many different ways, don't be afraid to try. If you fail, you know, if you fail to try, then you've failed from the beginning. So yeah, you're, you're certainly not going to improve your life without, you know, giving it a try and not fear failure. And real quick, I, one of the physicians I worked with, he had a friend who was very successful, but he had filed bankruptcy twice in 14 years. I said, oh my gosh, that's terrible. He says, why? I said, well, bankruptcy, isn't that absolute failure? He said, no. He said he tried to open a business. It wasn't successful. So he filed bankruptcy, and then he tried again, and that failed. And then he failed bankruptcy, and then he became successful. Now, that's generally not the prescription I would write for somebody is to file <laughs> bankruptcy several times. But it just goes to show that he wasn't afraid to, to go out there and try. And he eventually became successful. So, you know, it took him 15, 16 years, and he went through bankruptcy twice. But he said, Bill, think about this. When you file bankruptcy, you have wiped your slate clean. And guess what? Now creditors are like, <laughs> absolutely, let's issue him a card or let's issue him <laughs> But uh, it just goes to show that just keep trying, and you will find success. For sure. Yeah. For sure. So we've hit on, you know, many of the takeaways, so I, I won't go back to that. I think a lot of your experience and your stories. I think the big point about taking care of yourself and being willing to make sacrifices uh, at the same time, having that balance is is something so important. But something that I thought of as, uh, you know, just kind of a fun story is the kind of different drills that you guys prepare. I know that you uh, asked me to be a part of one where it was some sort of chemical outbreak and we had to almost act as zombies. And then having my aunt, your sister, Haley, quote unquote, steal a baby. So could you just tell us about Let's some of those? clarify on that, yeah, because that sounds horrible. Yeah, so, you know, the Ohio Department of Health, we'll, we'll cycle back real quick to the stealing of a baby. Uh, Ohio Department of Health requires that anyone who has a, uh, you know, women's and children's where they have a birthing center, that they practice what is called a code atom drill. Code atom is universal throughout the country. When a code atom is issued, that essentially lets you know that a child has been abducted. And so in our hospital, we have many mitigation plans, lockdowns, shutdowns. There's no way to get off of a floor should they remove a child from the area. And unfortunately, this is not a regular occurrence throughout the nation, but it does happen. So we do that by testing that six times a year. So we do it by shift and uh, by quarter. And so we will employ, not pay, employ someone and you know educate them about our code atom procedure and policy response. And then we will carefully coordinate with the nurse manager of that department and then have that individual, the abductor, go in, not take a real baby, but generally like a, you know, a play child or a model. A or, doll. Yeah. And they will leave the area with one of the bands that we utilize to prevent that child leaving the area. 
And of course, I always like to teach the abductor how to get out or to the best of their ability, because of course I know how the system works. And almost 99.999% of the time that person never gets out. It's only usually through a fluke where perhaps an employee says, oh yeah, yeah, here, just I'll let you through. Like this is probably a drill. Not realizing that the person they're letting through the door is the abductor. So we've done this for years. My sister has done that. My little sister Haley, uh, your aunt. And I've had multiple people do that. And it's a great test. And, you know, parents are like, ah, they get scared because is this my baby? You know, the baby was in the nursery. Of course, we always relate to parents throughout the facility that afterwards, this was a drill. And, you know, initially you're thinking, oh, they're going to be mad. No, they were happy. Parents are like, I'm glad that you're drilling for this because I would hate to see my child or any other child be taken away from them, you know, from their family or from, you know, their mother. So yeah, we, we practice that. So we have code Adam drills and that's in accordance with our joint commission as well as the Center for Medicare and Medicaid and Ohio Department of Health. We also have drills which test our system response to various incidents. So we could have like a mass casualty incident, uh, very similar to what they experienced in Las Vegas when the mass murder shot over 600 people at the uh, festival there. And so every hospital has a mass casualty incident response. And that doesn't necessarily come from an active shooter. That could also be from, let's say, uh, you service an airport in your community, an airplane crash or a building collapse or a major accident on a freeway. So we need to learn how to handle a influx of patients that goes beyond our capabilities. How are we going to triage or to sort a mass group of people presenting to your emergency department or hospital? And so we drill on that and we put that plan into practice and we implement that and see how, okay, did this work or do we need to make improvements? Do we need additional training? So that requires a, a lot of careful coordination, but the particular drill you're speaking of is that we had a <laughs> chemical release from a local business, uh, which exposed a lot of folks that naturally would present themselves to a hospital because a lot of the chemicals industrial or otherwise, produce respiratory symptoms as well as nausea, vomiting, burns. So generally, their thought would be to go to a hospital to receive care. However, if you're exposed or contaminated with a material, we have what are called our hospital emergency response teams. And this is additional training that we do with some of our caregivers that requires a federal-level 16-hour class, not only practical but also a didactic portion so that they can learn how are these chemicals affecting the human body, the level of you know personal protective gear. Is it going to protect you from? And so, of course, we demonstrate that without, of course, exposing them to chemicals, but we relay experiences based on subject matter experts. And so that particular one, you were exposed to a chemical and you presented to the hospital for treatment. Our team was out there, had the decontent set up. They're all on their PPE and sprayed you down on a nice warm day, as I recall. Yes, it was oh, warm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it would have been uh, rather unfortunate if it was a cool day. Yes, and we've unfortunately run those drills where they're less than <laughs> temperate conditions. But, uh, you know, yeah, I've used my family, and, 
<laughs> and I think it was an enjoyable experience. Oh yeah, I mean it was it was definitely memorable, and that's uh, that's why I wanted to bring it up. Just yeah, as a... yeah. So super fun. Yeah, that's we do that as a part of our preparedness efforts, amongst many other things. We have active shooter training throughout the hospitals, which is essential because it's basically an open door. The only department that is protected from bringing a weapon is the emergency department with a magnetometer. But for the most part, you can walk into the hospital, go up to, say, see a family member or whatnot, and cause a lot of hell and havoc. So we have to have response plans. And, of course, we mitigate a lot of that by having our own police on site, rehearsals and drills and practicums with uh, city and local services. So, yeah, that's a, a huge part of what I do. And it's probably one of the, my favorite parts of what I do yeah. is all the planning <laughs> for that. So, yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Oh, it's yeah, fun. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill, I mean, it's it's been an incredible discussion. And I really appreciate your time and willingness to come and, and chat about your career, your path. Uh, and, you know, I, I truly think of you as a determined person. And, you know, you've mentioned you look up to me, but I also look up to you. So it's, it's a pleasure. It's been fun and appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you, Tommy. And Paul, feel better, and things are looking up for you. Take care of yourself, and Happy New Year, guys. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever you're listening to this Brace podcast. We ask you to follow us on Instagram at brace.22. Paul's Twitter is at Paul from Brace. And be sure to email us at brace22 at protonmail.com. Please leave us a five-star review wherever you are listening and send to a friend if you found value in this discussion. Thanks. We appreciate it.